I'm excited to share today. I'm a little intimidated because I'm a, I'm a Christian pastor, so all of my Bible school and seminary training has been in Christianity, and now I'm going to teach about some other religions uh, that I'll be honest, I'm not an expert on, but at the same time, we're trying to tackle, and like Bo said, less than an hour, all the rest of the world's religions. So we're really not going to get a huge amount of it. It's more of a more of an overview, a little bit of how do we adjust our thoughts to what's going on with religions and the rest of the world. Uh, how can we as Christians respond? And honestly, uh, even a little bit of that issue of exactly what I'm doing right now, of standing up in front of a bunch of people going, I don't really know all the answers about these other religions. And so how can, can we as believers... Thinking about apologetics, thinking about having an answer for our faith, address questions that are brought up in response to faith systems that aren't ours, that we didn't grow up with, that we don't know much about. When we look at the world around us, uh, those who claim to be Christians make up just about a third of the world's population, uh, which even that can be a little bit of a misleading number, because when you take that third and actually start to break it down, you know, just over half of that uh, would be uh, those of the Catholic faith. Uh, and then in that remaining half, less than half, claiming to be Christian, um, you've got that, that breaks down even further and further. So it's just something like 6% would claim to be kind of Protestants in the manner that we are around the world, which then <laughs> brings up the question from so many people, uh, who are you to say you're the ones that are right? Is, is that much of the world really so wrong? And uh, in our culture today, uh, Dr. Hart got into a little bit uh, a few weeks ago when he was talking about the postmodern culture, really embraces an attitude of, you know, can't we all just believe what we believe? And, and your truth is true for you, and my truth is true for me. That uh, I have a Somebody that I went to college with at Gordon College years and years and years ago who's kind of, he wouldn't say he's walked away from the faith. For me, it feels like he has, but I listen to his podcast sometimes because he's a little bit known now, uh, and, and he'll interview different people, and, and he speaks of his faith as kind of a mishmash of picking different pieces of different religions and putting them together. And it's just all true, and you know, as long as we're sincere and as long as we're pursuing... So how do we answer to all of that? How, how do we respond to people say that? And, and honestly, his approach is a whole lot less confrontational, isn't it? It's, it's hard to offend when you just say, oh yeah, no, you're right. You're right, you're right. You all disagree with each other, but you're each right. Like, it just, uh, it creates confusion, but at the same time, it's a lot easier in our culture. Uh, you should have gotten a handout on your way in, um, because I have a ton of slides. At first, I thought about making the handout fill-in, so you'd have to fill in the blank as you went along. And then I thought, I don't want to be responsible for bringing that many pens. So it's all just there. I'm going to trust that, that you're not going to skip ahead or, or say, I don't need to listen. I can just go. I've got the notes. Uh, because I didn't put any of my witty little side remarks in there. (laughs) 
All right, so here's the first thing I want to address, because we really, we can't tackle all the world's religions in one hour, especially when I ate up so much time saying that we can't tackle all the world's religions in one hour. But I would say there's about three broad categories of religions in the world uh, to be aware of. The first is monotheism. These would be faiths that believe there is one God. That's true of us, Christianity. That's true of Judaism. Uh, That's true of Islam. Each of these faiths would say there is one God. Polytheistic religious systems would say there's many gods. Uh, Hinduism, uh, many Eastern religions, kind of New Age thought, uh, ancient Greeks and Egyptians. We, we read about them in the scriptures, right? Where they had many idols, many uh, different deities that they're following. Uh, some of these belief systems may have a hierarchy to these deities where, you know, there's kind of a, a top god, a bunch of other little gods below them. Uh, but so there's polytheistic. There are many gods. And finally, pantheism. All is God. God is in all. Just kind of this attitude of everything is God. Uh, you know, the world around us, the things around us, me, all of us have a piece of God in us. Buddhism, uh, some of the classical thought and Zen, animism, where you see even God in like the plants and animals, all of creation. Uh, and so these are kind of three broad categories of religions. And uh, what I want to do is take an example from each of those categories, kind of the biggest one from each of the categories, and kind of look at it a little bit, fly through it a little bit, and, uh, and then ask some, here are some questions that we can ask when we're interacting with somebody uh, who's a part of that faith. What are some ways that we can respond to them? What are some directions that we can go in our conversations with them? Uh, one of the challenges, I think, for us is because we're so passionate about our beliefs, right? That, you know, I am devoutly a Christian. And so having grown up in a Christian home, and, and even, you know, there was a period of time where I kind of faded away from that and walked away from it, but then I came back to it, and it was a very powerful moment in my life, very dramatic. And so for me, it just makes sense, right, that I have this faith in the Word. It's very easy for me to accept that the Bible is from God. I've had some experiences in my life that just really confirm it for me, where I go, there, there's no other explanation than that the God that I believed in intervened in this way or provided in that way or or moved in whatever way. And one of the things that as we interact with people of other faiths that we need to recognize, uh, because it's easy for us to turn into uh, an argument or debate or even a how can you be so wrong. In many cases, those followers have that same kind of, of, of heart conviction and belief going on. And so when we come in, we're not having an intellectual debate with them. We're, we're debating their heritage, where they grew up, what they grew up with, their family, their, their, uh, their background, all of these different things. And so there's a delicacy to that of how can we engage in a way that isn't insulting, but is still thought-provoking. That uh, years ago, some of you may have heard me tell this story. Uh, years ago, I used to... Um, Uh, In my first church, in the community, there was uh, an abortion clinic there. And so I would go with some of uh, the other local Christians to pray at the clinic 
uh, for those that were in need. And it was such a, a fascinating uh, experience. For about a year or two, I was going down there. It was uh, one day a week they were open, so we'd go down every... And uh, there, it was all the same people there every time. There, there was a group of Catholics praying on one side of the door, the group of Protestants praying on the other side. Because uh, we kind of agreed on it, but apparently we couldn't agree together. It's like, come on, we're on the same page on that one. But, but the way this particular clinic was is the doorway was right on the sidewalk, and the parking lot for it was on the other side, like an angle and intersection. And uh, there was one guy who was there uh, every time. They, had, they, they literally had to paint a radius around the door. There were court orders. Uh, he was not allowed within that radius. There were people from the clinic that would be there with their cameras filming in case they could catch him crossing because they're trying to get rid of him. He had all sorts of massive posters of aborted babies. He a very disturbing look at and, and a megaphone. He would just scream at everyone. Every, every week there was about 8 to 12 women that would come. Frequently young women. Uh, a lot of times uh, older teenagers, early 20s, oftentimes alone, which that kind of bothered me too. I'm like, where are these guys? Where are their families? Uh, but he would just have the megaphone and be screaming at them about how they were murderers and this and that. And uh, in two years of watching him do that, I never saw one person hear him and go, you're right. I'm not going to do it. Uh, actually, usually what they did is they got mad, hunched down, and just boom, went in the door. And then there were these two tiny women. I don't know why I need to say they're tiny. But there were these two women. And uh, they were incredible. Uh, they would start, they would be over in that parking lot. And when uh, these girls and women would get out of their cars and walk across, they literally had 30 seconds with them. Or less. And they would walk on either side of them and just quietly be going, whatever it is you need, we'll get it. You need diapers? We've got it. You need a place to live? We've got a place for you to live. We'll pay for the delivery costs. We'll pay for the insurance. We'll pay for the food. We'll pay for the formula. We'll pay for, like, what? And just going through the list of every fear that is usually behind this decision. And every week somebody changed their mind. Every week, somebody would stop before they get to the clinic and go, wait, you can do it. And they showed me once. They had a photo album of all of the babies that they had. Re- and, and I say all that to say, uh, it's amazing what that gentle approach that respects the other person, that understands there is something shaping this decision or this conviction or this belief. Right? It's not somebody just being wrong. And so I think the challenge for us when we engage on these kinds of topics is having a respect for other people of wanting, you know, as believers called by God to reach the world around us, wanting them to know the truth, but bringing that truth in a way that builds bridges, not tears them down. And so that's going to shape some of my thoughts when, when I talk about how do we approach some of these different belief systems. Uh, the first category, an example from monotheism, uh, is Islam, which is a big talking point these days. Uh, Islam literally means submission to God. The followers are called Muslims. Uh, there are more than a billion Muslims globally, predominantly in Middle East, Indonesia, Pakistan, 
Bangladesh, and India. Uh, this is a faith that is deeply connected to government systems. So a lot of these predominantly Muslim countries have Muslim governments, it's a, which really reinforces that that is the religion that's going to be in that country. Uh, it was founded around 622 A.D. by Muhammad. Um, now, what I wrote there is, is how they would view it, not, not us. Uh, and according to Muhammad, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Jesus were each prophets, and he was the latest and uh, best prophet. And so from their perspective, the Islamic faith builds on what Judaism started Christianity continued, and they complete. Uh, So as he uh, was starting off early in his life, he was having these visions. Pastor Nate actually uh, noted in one of his resources recently, we were talking about it the other week, that uh, Muhammad originally had these visions that that seemed to be God communicating additional truth to him. uh, And he believed it was of the devil. His wife convinced him. Now, actually, it's from God. And so he began putting together these thoughts and collecting these thoughts and beginning to share them and and having a few followers in Mecca, but eventually being pushed out. Mecca uh, was a huge magnet for uh, false god worship. There was a, a temple there with tons of different idols. It was actually kind of a tourist destination. You'd make your trip there. You'd worship these different gods. It was a big source of income for the city, uh, and so Muhammad coming along going, no, 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 none of them are real. Uh, it's just this God. Allah was not great for business. And so he was chased out of the town, uh, ended up in Medina, and where there he did, his handful of followers followed him there. They eventually built up to a much larger, powerful group over the course of about 10 years to the point of uh, when they came back to Mecca, they were able to seize control of it and take over the city. And from there, just gradually over time, continuing to take control of the the surrounding countryside. Now, when uh, Muhammad passed away and one of his family members became the new leader of Islam, that was when they started even more aggressively and violently conquering some of the other communities and eventually countries around them where uh, it was kind of this believe or die approach. And so they would come in, you're going to believe or else. Uh, And so that within a hundred years of beginning the Muslim faith, uh, their reach spanned from southern France and Spain all the way to China, the, the borders of China. Some of their basic uh, beliefs, God uh, is called Allah. The idea of an incarnate personal God is blasphemous to a Muslim. Um, this is where one of the uh, frustrations for me sometimes as a pastor is, is I'll hear the comment, don't, don't Muslims believe in the same God as Christians and Jews, right? Because they've technically taken the Old Testament and the New Testament, the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament, and said that what he was doing uh, was right, that the Bible is a part of the picture and that this is the final picture. Uh, But as you immerse yourself more and more in Islam, you realize that the God described as Allah 
in Islam uh, bears little resemblance to the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. So just because you're giving the same name doesn't make it the same God. They, they might, and so it's, I keep trying to think, like, what's the perfect analogy? I haven't got one. So there you go. But, but it is kind of this frustrating thing where I think a lot of people who are not deeply familiar enough with Christianity or deeply familiar enough uh, with Islam uh, would believe, hey, isn't it all the same God between the different faiths with just some differences of opinions and interpretation? Uh, and I would, I would say no, that the God of Islam might have roots in Judaism and Christianity but the way he's described is so far removed from the God that we know and believe in, uh, just because they say it comes from the same roots, it's no longer that same God, um, if I'm saying that right. Uh, and just one piece of that is the idea of an incarnate personal God is blasphemous. They would say that Christians are polytheistic. We believe in many gods because we believe in God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so they would say, no, Jesus isn't God. Jesus is literally the Son of God. Uh, as in that God, at a specific point in time, had this son. They believe that man is capable of sin, but he's innately capable of pleasing God perfectly. In other words, even though we are imperfect, we can satisfy God perfectly through works. That salvation is based on works in the Islamic faith. The pleasure of Allah is achieved by religious observation. Observance. And so, how you satisfy God, how you meet his requirements for salvation, is uh, the five pillars Uh, faith through confession. That is the declaration uh, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is the apostle of God. That, that, That declaration of faith, of associating yourself with that faith. The uh, second pillar is Salah, uh, the prayer ritual five times a day. Some of us are familiar with that. We've, you see it on TV sometimes the, you know, the, the, in the countries where there are actually Muslim governments and religions, loud calling towers, uh, calling people to pray, and they pull out their mats, and they point it in the direction of Mecca. Um, zakat, almsgiving to the poor. Two and a half percent of their annual income is to be given to the poor and the needy. Uh, they're to fast during Ramadan. Uh, that's the ninth month of the year. And then ideally, they're able to make a pilgrimage to Mecca at some point in their life. Uh, Converting to Islam requires external actions. These are all external things that happen. So where do we agree and disagree? That is the question. Is the Bible God's word? Oops, just got ahead of myself there. Uh, is the Bible God's word? Um, so like I said, it's, it's a little interesting because uh, for the Muslim faith, like I said, I'm not an expert from what I'm reading and seeing. Uh, they would say Muhammad is the greatest prophet, the last prophet. And so what he did built on the Bible. So uh, Muhammad was actually very fascinated with Jesus in particular in the New Testament. And so uh, they would accept the Bible, but that it's incomplete, that the Quran 
uh, gives the, the rest of the information, the final word. Uh, what is the purpose of God's revelation? Uh, so for them, they would feel all of it, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Quran, is all part of God's revelation, that it's all part of Islam, that Abraham was a Muslim, you know, that Jesus was a Muslim. They, they were each parts of that chain of story. Uh, but what was incredibly different for them is this idea of a personal God in a personal relationship with God. Uh, you know, when, when you look at the five pillars, when you look at uh, the course of what the Quran pushes towards, it's much more an impersonal, distant relationship, whereas we're called to a personal relationship. Uh, did Jesus really die on the cross? Uh, the Quran uh, writes, they killed him not, they crucified him not. It was likened unto them. They killed him not knowingly, but God raised him, and God is the most merciful of the merciful. Uh, in other words, in Muhammad's mind, Jesus was so good and so perfect, there's no way that God would actually have allowed him to be crucified. And so the people might have thought they had, but really God had pulled him up before that crucifixion happened. That, uh, and so they don't believe that the salvation comes through Jesus' substitutionary death and resurrection. It comes through following these five steps in the in the path um what about the trinity i already kind of touched on that uh that that muslims would view us as polytheistic that we believe in multiple gods for them you can't say the trinity exists it doesn't make sense and it's hard for us to explain how can you have three distinct persons that are one god uh here's some questions that we can think about as we interact with uh, people of the Muslim faith. And I think that the real key is this idea of grace. And there's something in us uh, that's wired for this need for grace. The, uh, the Bible talks about how God has written his word on our hearts, that we were designed to have a relationship with God when sin got in the way and separated that. There's something fundamentally missing from our lives until we make that commitment to Christ. And so even for the person that might not realize that, there is something in them hungering for grace. And uh, in Islam, that isn't part of the equation. And so uh, a good question to kind of bring up is, how do you know if you're doing enough good deeds to receive salvation on the day of judgment? You can't know. You can never, uh, you know, technically you can achieve the, the path, uh, the five pillars, but, but you can never actually know for sure if you've achieved it enough. Uh, one of the key differences between Christianity and even Judaism uh, before Christ came and the rest of world religions is this abstract notion that God is doing the saving for us, that we simply need to trust in him. It's a gift from him. Every, every other man-made religion gives a checklist of here's what you need to do to earn it. Because that's what we gravitate towards. We want checklists. They make us feel good. It's nice to know here's what I need to do, and I've achieved what I need to achieve. You know, the, the, the idea of when uh, the Moses started writing Genesis in the Old Testament 3,500 years ago, uh, the beginnings of the, he didn't write the whole Old Testament, I know that. Uh, 
There were a bunch of different authors. But when he did that, uh, even secular historians cannot come up with an... Wow. Uh, cannot come up with an explanation of how in a world where every other religious belief of the day believed that the gods were distant and didn't care about humanity. That's why when we read about other pagan beliefs in the Old Testament, uh, they're cutting themselves, they're hurting themselves, screaming out for their uh, pagan gods. And the reason they would do this is not because their gods loved them, their gods were annoyed by them. Humanity was kind of there to be used by them, and so what you would do is you would hurt yourself or beat on yourself or uh, just make enough of a nuisance out of yourself that these false gods would finally feel bad enough for you they'd just be like, or, or just to shut you up would give you what you wanted. And out of that world suddenly emerged this voice talking about a God that not only created us, had us at the top of creation, that loves us, that cared for us, that right from the beginning is giving, you know, even through the Old Testament, Jews may have at times mistakenly believed that they were saved because of the things they did, but even the Old Testament is very clear they were being saved because of their faith. Their faith was credited to them. And then that's affirmed again in the New Testament. And, and so secular historians can't explain why 3,500 years ago this kind of belief system would begin to emerge. I would go, well, because it's from God. In the same way, 2,000 years ago, this idea of Christ coming and saying, uh, you know, once again, God is doing it all for us. God is chasing us. God wants us. That diverges from all these other religions that come up with checklists and things we need to do. I, I heard one speaker say, you can tell every uh, man-made religion because they all tell the men they can marry all the women they want and they can have all, like, it's just listing all these things. They go, Christianity is the only one that's gone. Nope, it's just one. It's just like sacrifice, all these different... It just, it stands out in so many different ways. And so, uh, it was a really long-winded answer to say, one of the questions that we need to address, because God has wired that longing in us for that kind of grace that he's promised to us, he's written it on our hearts. And so getting someone to think, can you ever do enough? Can you actually know? What if what Jesus said was true? One of the fascinating things with Islam is because Muhammad was so fascinated with Jesus, it's considered a good thing to know more about Jesus. And so kind of asking that, that provoking question of, well, Muhammad liked Jesus. And Jesus, you know, even in your opinion, is a prophet. What if what he said was true then? Now, what if when he said... He's the only way that was true. What if when he called them to just faith? What if that's true? How does that impact what you believe now? How can Christianity be a part of Islam when its teachings are so different? This is going to be a question that comes up a couple times today. But, but even just kind of asking the question, if you, as a Muslim, believe that, Islam, that Christianity was Islam, that Judaism was Islam, that it was all one unbroken change. How can that actually be true when their teachings are so significantly different? The, the, the teachings about who God is and what God is, about who Christ is and what he is, how can that be a part of Islam when it's so contradictory to what Islam would later say? Uh, so those become... Just kind of some conversation starter. 
And again, it's, you're much more effective when people, with people when you can ask questions that get them thinking that have them come to the answer rather than us just barking the answer at them. Right? That, that there's a good reason why Christ's ministry was predominantly asking questions. Every time people get, what about this? What about that? And then he would ask a question. Sometimes seemingly completely unrelated to the question they asked. It had to be so frustrating. Uh, but, but when we can have people begin to think through some of these things, they go, yeah, wait a minute. I, I do believe that what Jesus said was true, but what Jesus said contradicts what I believe about this. How do you, how do you process that? How do you wrestle through that? Um, I had uh, a friend in one of my first churches. He was one of the elders there. Uh, this isn't a faith that we're going to tackle today, especially now at the rate I'm going. Uh, but he was a former Jehovah's Witness. And now they would say that they're Christian, but they've completely changed the tone of their interpretation of Scripture. It's completely diverged. Uh, you've probably heard of them. They probably come to your door occasionally. There used to be one that used to come to my door every three months in our last town. And, and I lived in the parsonage at the church. I was like, seriously, man. I am not going to convert. <laughs> like, my job's on the line here, dude. If for no other reason, can you... No. So... But the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, are heavily influenced by their commentaries and their, their instructions from their religious leaders. And so this guy uh, had actually started a ministry where he was helping bring people out of the Jehovah's Witness faith back to uh, what we would believe is Christianity. And his simple way was that he would challenge when they'd come to him or they would reach out to him online because they start to have questions. And you go, uh, give, me, give me a six-month challenge. Read the Bible for six months without using any of the JW uh, commentaries. Without using it, just read it for what it says. And he was like, if I could get them to take that challenge, they would most likely convert within the six months. Because without someone else telling them what it means, it's just so, it's so plain and simple there. So, so guiding someone to, well, if you think Jesus is true, read what he's saying. Look at what he's saying. Uh, so again, the key opening there is grace. Let's fly through another one. Oh my goodness. I just looked at the clock. Hinduism. This is the uh, example of a polytheistic religion. Uh, did I just say polytheistic? I meant to say pantheistic. Yes, I meant to say pantheistic. I confuse myself sometimes. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes, it's Polly, and I put that wrong on your handout. Hinduism does not claim to be the only truth. Uh, they don't think there's one eternally or dominant or correct form. Even so, even within their belief system, people have differences, significantly differences of opinions. Uh, there's about a billion Hindus globally predominantly in India, United Kingdom, and the United States. It began around 1500 B.C., so we don't know who started it. We're not even entirely sure exactly how it began, uh, just that that's when some of the writings and some of the information started cropping up. Uh, so that's our best guess, that it began somewhere around 1500 B.C. It does not have a set of static beliefs, uh, views history in kind of a circular, non-linear 
way. And part of that is this idea of reincarnation, and we're coming back, and we're repeating things. Uh, there is no one single idea of God. Uh, they have the Brahman, who's the absolute, impersonal, all-embracing spirit, but they also believe in many, many other lesser deities. Uh, it's based on works. This idea of uh, karma, that how we treat others, how we live our life, affects this cycle of death and birth and rebirth and death. And, and so uh, our actions impact our karma is how we pay back the atonement for our bad actions. Uh, and so it's this work base of if you can have the good works, you will have a better experience next time um, going around. The, uh, let me find my notes. Every Hindu wants to escape this cycle. Uh, the quality of their next life, uh, reincarnation, their next uh, step, their next life is based on the actions of this life. And so you want your karma to be better. You want uh, to live a life that will cause each of your next life to be better than the previous one. Uh, their ultimate aim is to escape from the cycle altogether by attaining moksha, liberation. Uh, so that when their soul, uh, when they die, their soul is reborn. Oops, I just skipped into a different sentence. Uh, by attaining liberation from the whole cycle, uh, which I think is effectively nothingness, um, to be removed from it. Uh, and so it's this abstract concept. There's a lot of different beliefs in it, different approaches, different deities. And you don't really, again, because it's works-based, you don't really know what's going to happen until you hit the next uh, phase. Um, where do we agree and disagree? Uh, does history matter? Uh, we, as Christians, would say that history is incredibly important. That it has a beginning, that it has an end, that God is revealing to us information over the course of that history, that uh, really uh, we would see it as God's plan to glorify himself through creation, through uh, the salvation of humanity, through the work of his son on the cross, that, uh, that there is very much a purpose and a direction to history. Whereas for the Hindu, uh, it's more of a cycle instead of linear. It's constantly repeating. It's uh, ultimately kind of a meaningless, it's just going on and on, and you just wish you could escape it. What is God like? Uh, for Hindus, humankind is the manifestation of impersonal Brahman force, but has no individual worth. Uh, meanwhile, Christians would believe that we're created in God's image, that our ultimate purpose and value and worth comes through embracing that relationship with Christ. That, that, that where the Hindus would view us as so unvaluable because of this repeating meaningless cycle uh, in our view humanity is so incredibly valuable that God would sacrifice his life to save us what are the consequences of our actions uh, here's where we kind of agree right that 
that our actions have consequences, that they have impact, uh, but in very different ways. Right? For them, it affects their karma. It affects this uh, endless cycle. For us, uh, our actions offend a holy God. Uh, but they're also a part of why God has come and saved us and redeemed us. How does one become a Hindu or a Christian? Uh, both faiths would say that you can't coerce somebody into it. You can't be born into it. It doesn't just happen. Uh, Hindus uh, would say salvation is part of this cycle of birth and death and rebirth, that it's uh, embracing the system, that it's pursuing good actions, whereas we would see us forming a personal relationship with God, accepting the salvation he offers. Uh, Hindus believe that Jesus is a divine manifestation, but not more special than any of these other lesser deities. Uh, whereas we would believe that he is the God of the universe. And so some questions to ask Hindus, because of this challenge of you know, embracing the idea that there's multiple gods and multiple teachings and all these different things, a, a question uh, becomes, do you really believe all religions are equally true even when they teach different things? Like, if you actually embrace the idea that all of these different gods exist, including Jesus as a lesser deity, how does that actually work when they say contradictory things? Uh, Can there be different gods saying contradictory things? Um, I think that's the challenge, going back to my friend from college, who now has kind of this mishmash of beliefs of going, are you actually believing any of it? Because those different pieces say the others are wrong. So are you actually thinking it through to its logical conclusion? So how does it pan out even when they teach different things? How do you explain human nature in a way that accounts for Mother Teresa and Adolf Hitler? Uh, Kind of this idea of Where did I put my notes on that one? (laughs) Kind of this idea of if we're all in this endless cycle, if we're all working towards becoming something better and better karma, how does our society produce such a wild range of individuals? Uh, How do you know when you're good enough to be liberated? Can, Can you actually know that? There's something in us that longs for that kind of security. I would suggest the reason we long for it is because God's put that desire in there because it's a desire that can be satisfied in God. And so when it's not being satisfied, guiding somebody to that question of, so why? When, when can you know this? Is, this? is this really an accurate belief system if it can't give you a concrete answer? And again, that key opening is this idea of grace. Buddhism. Jump to another part of the world. There are about 500 million Buddhists worldwide, primarily in China, Tibet, East Asia. Uh, this is a pantheistic religion. I got to quit blowing into the mic so hard. Uh, it appeals to postmodern society. Postmodern society loves this idea of just that God is everywhere, God is in us, God is part of us. Uh, it's non dogmatic, it doesn't really have rules to it. You believe what you believe, I believe what I believe. Uh, It's relative. Uh, There can be spiritual guides to it. 
It was founded in the late 6th century BC by Siddhartha Gautama, uh, the first Buddha in the Himalayas. Uh, it teaches that we are all God, that God is in all of us, that we're all a part of God. God is everywhere. God is us. We are God. It has no omnipotent creator God who exists apart from this or any other universe. We, we would say that God is separate, right? That God existed before anything else existed. He spoke it into existence. Uh, whereas they would say there isn't some separate, distant God. It's, it's all God. You're God, I'm God, we're all a part of God. Uh, they also believe in karma, similar to uh, Hindus, this endless cycle of birth and rebirth, cause and effect, uh, that our karma affects where we're going. It's the same endless cycle. Um, and within all this, it teaches four noble truths. The truth of suffering, that living uh, to live is to suffer. Uh, the truth of the origin of suffering, that suffering is caused by desire. We allow ourselves to get attached to things. We want things. We cause our own suffering. The truth of the uh, cessation of suffering, that one can eliminate suffering by eliminating desire, by simply accepting our existence and where we're at and being satisfied and being content. Uh, and that the truth of the path to cessation of, of suffering, which achieves nirvana, uh, is, is accomplished by following the eightfold path, which is right view, right intention, right speech, right actions, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration or meditation. Uh, and so achieving this eightfold path brings the Buddhists to a state of nirvana. Uh, where they're at peace, uh, one with all of it. Um, and I'm not an expert on it, so I'm not going to try to go into that deeper. Uh, but here's where we agree and disagree, right? Who is, who is Jesus? Uh, they would just say that he's another teacher, leading people to enlightenment, uh, perhaps maybe another Buddha, uh, another one of these leaders. Uh, they would say that the problem of man they kind of get it half right, right? That we would say uh, that uh, we do have this problem of suffering, but that we have the answer through God. Uh, they would say that the problem is suffering uh, and that the answer is to simply eliminate desire. We would say that the problem isn't to eliminate desire to get rid of suffering. The, the, the challenge is right-placed desire. That our desire needs to be focused on God and following God and emulating Christ. Right? And so uh, our challenge is transformation, not simply embracing what it is. Who really is God? And it's very clear on this one that we have very differing opinions. Uh, because you have the Buddhists who would say God is everything, we're all part of God. Uh, and the Christian would say, we might be created in the image of God, but we are not God. And uh, we desperately need God. Some questions to ask 
uh, conversation starters with a Buddhist would be, Buddhism is right that there is nothing on earth that permanently exists. What if I told you there was a world with God that would exist forever? Uh, Almost kind of like the Apostle Paul going into the one city and going, hey, I see you have a statue to the unknown God. Would you like me to tell you who he is? Right? Because our first impulse might be, whoa, don't, don't point to a pagan idol. But he's using a piece of it going, hey, you believe there's nothing that permanently exists. We believe it too. Uh, but what if we told you there was something that does? And kind of opening the door to that conversation. On his deathbed, Buddha said, I remind you that all things are impermanent. I advise you to take refuge in yourselves and the teachings. Everything that is born is subject to decay. There is no external savior. It's up to each of you to work out your own liberation. How can a Buddhist be saved from meaninglessness? Again, kind of provoking that question of, uh, if you're supposed to sort out your liberation, if you're supposed to sort out a way from meaninglessness, how do you do it? Appealing to that part of us that craves what we were designed to have. Denying desire denies the desire to enjoy a friendship and family, work and play, recreation and exploration. Does a Buddhist not desire these things? And why is it so hard not to desire? Kind of provoking the thought, if we're not supposed to desire these things, even good things, why do we have those desires to begin with? Like that, uh, that wouldn't be a part of the natural course of evolution to, to create these kind of abstract thoughts and desire. Where did it come from? Why would they have been placed in us? And kind of asking that thought-provoking question of, so maybe the problem isn't desire, it's what we desire. Buddhism teaches that desire is the problem, yet all humans desire things from early childhood. Could this desire point something, someone we were created to desire? Just play back all the comments I just made about the one before. Uh, same, kind of, same kind of thing. You're just kind of pushing people to think about that question. And the openings there are suffering and permanence. You know, what is the answer to suffering? Is it just simply that everything's meaningless in this cycle? Or, or is there something deeper to it? And, and this idea of permanence. Is there a spiritual world, something better coming? Uh, also, but this doesn't really fit the three categories of religions, but I think some of the things that we're about to say uh, deals with it. Uh, years ago, a guy named Christian Smith did a massive research project on faith in America, and he was focused on young people at first, but it really broadened to all ages because what he came back with was this is what young people believe predominantly in America. Uh, and it, then it turns out that it, that's essentially what their parents believe, that they got it from their parents. And uh, for many, many people in America that would call themselves spiritual, even call themselves Christian, uh, what he suggests is they're actually practicing something he called moral therapeutic deism. In other words, uh, uh, moral, they believe there's good and evil. And we should be good. Uh, therapeutic, it feels good. You know, I show up when I need to. I do what I need to. Uh, even kind of this idea of, of picking the pieces that make sense to us. And not the, really that guy I went to college with. He was kind of, uh, kind of you know, we're, we're in such an iTunes and Spotify world where, you know, when I was a kid way back in the day, 
When you bought an album, you just got an album. You had to listen to the whole thing, right? You wanted to get to your favorite song. You don't know when you're going to get there. You just got to play it through. Now everybody creates their own playlist. You know, the selling an album has become a lot more difficult because everybody buys the singles and puts together their designer playlist of all the perfect songs and the perfect mix. And we kind of do that with religion in America. People are like, yeah, I really like what this says about this, but I don't like that, but I like their answer to it. And, you know, and even seeing some... So anyways... It's therapeutic. It feels good. Like I'm doing something. So that counts, right? Uh, and then deism, that they acknowledge there's a God, but his contention would be it's such a uh, picking and mixing that's really not the God of the Bible anymore. It's become kind of this false uh, collection of things, which uh, really reflects where so many are in America today. So I, I'm not going to dive into that to the level we did the other ones because we're probably all a little bit more familiar with uh, some of that, because what I want to close with, the, the, and I say that generously because there's like a couple pages of closing, uh, I like to give a false hope of, oh, he's done. He's going to finish on time. Uh, here's a couple questions that people have when they talk about religions, when we're talking just in general. So not necessarily talking to the Muslim or the Buddhist or the uh, Hindu or you know, the Mormon or the Jehovah's Witness. Uh, a lot of people are like, don't all religions teach the same thing? You know, kind of reflecting, especially in our culture where people really don't get much religious training to begin with. Uh, they'll grow up in a family and say, I'm Christian because I, you know, I go to church every Easter and my family says we're Christian. Uh, and if I don't, my mom will kill me. Uh, don't all religions teach the same thing? Different religions make very different claims. Uh, most of these religions claim to be the one that's right. Most of these religions would say, just in the same way that Jesus says, I'm the only way to God. These other ones would say, no, we're the way to God. And, and uh, this is where I got... A few years back, uh, Rob Bell made a lot of controversy because he came out with this book, Love Wins. And essentially the thesis of the book is that everybody ends up in heaven. And he kind of made this point. He said, hey, uh, you know, it doesn't matter. He said, God's going to save everyone. He said, I, and he says he's not a universalist because he says, uh, no, Jesus saves everyone. But then he goes on to say, it doesn't matter if they don't know it's Jesus saving them. And I was like, wait a minute. So is he suggesting that somebody could believe in something else and and think they're being saved by Buddha or, or uh, Muhammad or Allah or whatever, and, and still be saying that. And then in the next paragraph, he kind of said exactly that. He was like, so somebody, just because somebody's practicing one of these other religions and they're sincerely devoting themselves to it, God is the one saving them. Jesus is the one saving them. And so that contradicts what we see. But, but that's where we see one of these beliefs of, don't they all teach the same thing? Aren't they all kind of going after the same thing? And we say, no, if you actually study the Bible, if you actually study the Quran, if you actually study the different writings of these different teachings, they generally refute each other. Say, absolutely not. They're wrong. We're the ones that's right. Uh, world religions do have some similarities on the level of morality and ethics. There are some things that uh, multiple faith practices will say, yeah, we, we agree that this is wrong or that is wrong. But it still gets different when it comes to faith and salvation. Uh, and these differences make a difference. My obvious statement of the day. Uh, it's a big deal. 
And so then we, have, you know, people ask the question: Is Jesus the only way? Uh, because doesn't that feel kind of mean? Is it? Can we really say that the few percent of us that believe that Jesus is the only way are the ones that are right? Um, and I put a few verses here, but uh, essentially, you know, Isaiah forty-five twenty-one says, "There's no god apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me." John fourteen six says, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father." except through me. It's according to Jesus' words, he's it. And some people might ask, you know, well, Jesus was nice, he had some nice teachings, but he doesn't necessarily know everything. But, but I love the old, uh, the old defense, I think it was C.S. Lewis that came up with it, the liar, lunatic, and Lord uh, explanation of, like, you can't really just say that Jesus was a good teacher and he got some things right and other things wrong because he, he made these kinds of claims. He claimed to be God. Uh, I love Andy Stanley says his, his number one reason uh, for believing that Jesus must have been who he was is uh, his younger brother James became a Christian after he died. You know, James was one of the ones that confronted Christ before he died. Uh, some of the brothers that came to Christ and were essentially like, whoa, you, you got to cut this out, man. People are saying, you're crazy. Like, this is not good. And, uh, and then after Jesus died and rose again, James converted. And Andy Stanley goes, that's enough for me. He was like, what would it take for you to believe your little brother, your older brother is God? <laughs> and I was like, wow, I never thought about that. It's, yeah. The, um, but C.S. Lewis proposed this argument, the liar, lunatic, or lord. He's going, anybody that makes these kinds of claims, that they're God, that they're the only way to be saved. That, that he went around forgiving people. That was shocking back then. Like, we're used to that idea now because we've grown up in church. Many of us have grown up in churches. And of course, Jesus can forgive. But when Jesus went around and forgave people, and the priests were like, we got to kill him. It's because everybody was thinking, who is he doing that? Right? A, a, a nice teacher doesn't do that. Like, if any of your kids were in you know, school and they came home, yeah. Uh, professor so-and-so said he's God today. would be like, wow, let's find another school. <laughs> right? And so C.S. Lewis's point was uh, he's either a liar or he's a lunatic, and he actually believes in himself, but he's not, you know, or he's actually Lord. Like, he, he's not just a nice teacher. Like, he's one of those three things, a liar, a lunatic, or a Lord. Um, so is Jesus the only way? And there's three things that people will bring up, those, uh, three, some of the three things. Uh, they'll, claim, they'll say that claiming Jesus is the only way is arrogant. And, and these are some verses. I'm not the one claiming Jesus is the only way. Jesus, in these verses, claims he's the only way. And his apostles, in these verses, claim that he's the only way. I'm just repeating the information. right? Uh, claiming Jesus is the only way is arrogant. Part of me also pushes back against that. going, yeah, but every religious out there, practice out there claims to be the way. That's one of the things that's inherent to having a faith system is that they can't all be right when they all say the others are wrong. So uh, claiming Jesus is the only way is arrogant. It's not arrogant. It's repeating. Uh, Jesus cannot be the only way because other religions would be false. If the other religions are right, then Christianity is false. We all make those claims about each other. So it's, it's one of those arguments 
that people like to propose, but they haven't really thought through. Because you can't, you can't say all the religions are right. Because we all, we all have statements that contradict each other. Uh, Jesus can't be the only way because other religions would be false. Uh, all that really matters is that people sincerely seek God. But this goes against Scripture. It appeals to us, right? That, uh, you know, can't we, if people are, since whatever it is they're doing, if they're really sincere about that, isn't God going to take that into consideration? But we know from what we've read in Scripture, we've got to say, no, this is what the plan is. This is the way. Jesus is the only way. So what about those who have never heard? Uh, you know, we live in this planet with billions of people. There are language groups that haven't yet had God's word in their language. Uh, all humankind is already under God's judgment because all men and women are sinful, morally accountable to God, and must give an answer to him. You know, and these are some of the verses that back that up. Uh, humankind is condemned to God's judgment. And normally I don't use four of the same letter kind of things, but this one kind of worked. Uh, but here's the thing. At first glance, this, this is one of the things that people love you as a charge of, like, how can this actually be true? Like, how can you hold people accountable to something they've never actually heard about? A human kind is condemned to God's judgment. Uh, I would suggest there's uh, these four ways that actually there is an opportunity for everyone. You know, that the Bible talks about how God's word is written on our hearts. There is something in us that recognizes the divine around us. The witness of creation. That we look at the world, you know, there is a God. There is something beyond it. This is why, now some people have misdirected that. But that's why throughout history, people have either pursued God or created religions to explain what they're seeing. Their conscience within. This idea that God has written his law in our hearts. That, that there's something in us that understands what's right and wrong. And, and uh, even in a, you know, when I, my working with young people, sometimes getting the arguments, well, I didn't know that was, I couldn't do that to them. And I'm like, really? Because I know for a fact you wouldn't be happy if they did it to you. So you know it's wrong. <laughs> like, if you don't want it to happen to you. Uh, it, but that, that we have a conscience within us that God has given us. That there's a communion in Adam and Eve in the fall. In other words, that, that we are linked to them through their sin. That there's something in us that's uh, broken our connection to God and our own personal commission of sin. Uh, all of these things are both what separates us from God, but also gives us the ability to be pointed to God. It's one of the... I, I shouldn't have looked at the clock. Uh, you know, for years, for a bunch of years, my family was part of a mission, New Tribes Mission, and their goal was to reach uh, language groups, tribes that had never had uh, the Word of God in their language before. And, and it was a really theologically conservative group, so I had a hard time with the idea of miracles or, or things going on. But, but I would meet missionaries and talk to them, and they'd tell us, about, yeah, no, these, before we came, this tribe had visions. Like, part of why they listened to us is they had these visions. And uh, the, the um, one tribe in particular that was really famous, it was the witch doctor. 
had these visions describing exactly what this old white-haired man was going to look like that was going to come talk to them and give them the answer that would save them all. And then the missionary showed up. That, uh, the, the tribe that my family lived with for a little while, the Monhui, they spoke of spiritual things that happened and visions and things they heard or knew that kind of pointed them towards God before missionaries ever showed up. And so there's, there's this little bit of an idea of like, when God says he's going to call people to him, he might do it in ways that we don't think of in modern day America. Uh, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Second Peter 3, 9, Romans 5, 10, 13, Joel 2, 32. Uh, and here's why this is a big deal. That anyone who calls on God will be saved. Scripture includes examples of pagans who trusted God and didn't know all the information. They didn't have all the religious background that we have. They didn't have all the training. They didn't grow up in the Christian home. They didn't have the Bible. Actually, the Old Testament people didn't know about Jesus yet, right? Uh, And yet, we read about in Hebrews 11, this list of all these Old Testament people that demonstrated faith and were saved, and they never knew anything of Jesus. Uh, Acts 10, Cornelius, Joshua 2, Rahab is incredible. Because she believed in God. All she knew about God is the Jews were going around conquering everyone after they'd been slaves in Egypt and hid out in the wilderness for 40 years. And she's like, I believe. And she ended up in the lineage of Christ. But she had, what did she have to actually base that belief on? She heard through the grapevine that this, this nation was showing up and had, you know, but she had a belief. Uh, Naaman in 2 Kings 5. And so there's examples in Scripture, of individuals with little to no information about God still placing a saving faith in God without having the... Re- so, so it's a long-winded answer to say it is possible. It does happen, and it's documented in Scripture. Uh, and the final verse I wanted to close this 10-week series with uh, is Romans ten fourteen. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe... And the one of whom they have not heard, how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Ultimately, we are called to reach the world around us. And, uh, you know, the, the idea of this series over the summer was to give us a little bit more tools so we can feel a little more confident when we're interacting with those around us that need to know about Christ. But honestly, if you know enough to be a Christian, right, which could be as simple as, I know I sinned, and here's what I said to God to make it right. You know enough to share faith with someone else. And we read in the New Testament of people converting and immediately turning around and preaching to others. And you have to think 80% of that conversation was the other going, well, what about this? I don't know. (laughs) Like, I don't know yet. And that's okay for us to say. Uh, You know, as you share your faith, as you live out this calling, we are called to reach the world around us. You don't have to have all of the answers to point people to Christ. You can start conversations. And if it gets to something you don't know, you go, wow, that's a really good question. I don't want to try and make something up on the spot. Can I, can I get back to you on that one? I've got, you know, I've got some friends that might be able to help me uh, give you a better answer. And now you've got me wondering. The, uh, people respect that a lot more than they will you faking it. Uh, But I think the challenge for us, God wants to reach this world and he's chosen us to be part of that plan to do it. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much that we get to be a part of you reaching 
the world around us. God, we ask that the things we've interacted with over the summer would be useful, that we'd be able to draw on them in our workplaces, in our homes, our neighborhoods, with our family, uh, with those we interact with. In your name, amen. All right, thank you for coming. If you missed any of the weeks, if you missed any of the weeks, the audio is online. I'm going to, up once I upload my handout in PowerPoint, all of it will have been put online as well from all the weeks.